From Boston University and BU Alumni Relations, welcome to Proud to Be You Around the World. I'm your host, Jeff Murphy, and this season we're taking the podcast on the road to meet some of our most interesting and accomplished alumni navigating life and careers in cities across the globe. On today's show, I had the opportunity to sit down with Parag Vaish, who's working in the heart of Silicon Valley as a founder in residence at Google. Parag graduated from the Questrom School of Business with an MBA in 2003. And since then, he's become a leader in the realm of mobile commerce, product design, and user acquisition through his work at industry giants like Microsoft, StubHub, and Tesla. Parag is one of more than 9,000 BU alumni who call the Bay Area home, and he's in good company with over 200 fellow Terriers also working at Google in California. In our talk, you'll hear us explore the challenges of disrupting the status quo and what it means to embrace a work ethic rooted in curiosity and innovation. Well, Parag, thank you so much for joining us on the Proud to Be You podcast. Uh, in looking at some of your career history, you just work for some amazing companies. How do you quickly tell somebody about what your career has been? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I tend to follow opportunities more than companies, and I look for working with great people and really challenging problems to go solve. Um, on top of that, I look for things that are innovative. So I, I tend to shy away from taking a role that someone has occupied for the prior 20 years to my arrival. And so that inherently creates the, the focus on innovation and cutting edge and problems that have not been solved yet. Those are the things that I prioritize. And in the course of that, then you come across some of the companies that I've worked for, you know, namely Tesla and uh, divisions of eBay, um, Disney, Microsoft, and now Google. Um, those are companies that are emblematic of those principles. And that's, uh, that's how my track has been, uh, has been carved. Well, let's rewind the clock a little bit. Tell us a little bit about who you were as a kid. I mean, did you sort of, even as a youngster, know that you were interested in sort of a career in innovation? And and if you could also tell us, you know, where you grew up. And uh, I know that you attended a, another school before coming to BU for grad school. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, I, I think I had a typical L.A. childhood, um, which which is resembles, you know, a kid who, who plays soccer and, and t-ball and, and goes to school and rides bikes and skateboards and all that fun stuff. Um, I, I think as, as most kids probably do, they aspire for things that are around them, that the, the roles and jobs that they might want to do are the things that they see. Um, for some reason, which I don't recall why, I was interested in becoming a dentist. And, and that would not have suited me well, knowing what I know about myself today. Um, I, I, no disrespect to the dentist profession or any other medical profession, um, but I feel like it's quite repetitive. I, you know, how much is a cavity different last month from this month? Um, but technology changes uh, every day and every week. So I needed that kind of pace of innovation. Um, so I don't think I had the foresight when I was a kid, you know, to, to, to see that this was my path forward. Uh, as far as my time in Los Angeles, I, you know, spent about 25 years in L.A., and uh, went to Cal State Northridge as my undergrad. I got a degree in finance, and it was it was one of the most um, influential times in my life, namely because of the 1994 Northridge earthquake. And so that was uh, the epicenter of my campus, and I lived probably about three, four miles away. And it was a, a defining moment, uh, I can honestly say that. 
Um, I, I learned a lot of principles. You learn a lot about yourself and your peers and what makes uh, people tick and successful. And, and really the term resiliency is, is the one that I've embraced from that time period. Um, I can go deeper on this, Jeff, but, um, you know, the, the gist of your question was my background is, you know, rooted in L.A. And and uh, that you know, carried me forward through to the time I moved to Boston for grad school. So what what year were you in school when the earthquake happened? And, and do you I, I know what you just told me about. I'm, I'm just curious to know if it sort of helped narrow your focus about what your career was going to be or if it changed the focus of your career in some way? Yeah, I was a freshman in college. So it was between my first and second year or second semester of uh, being a freshman. So pretty early on in the college experience. And I I don't know that I connect the earthquake to my career because at that time it was really about just making it by, frankly. And so you, you literally have buildings that are toppling over and, and classrooms are now uh, trailers, and uh, there's a lot more to handle and to deal with as you go. Um, what, what it did was, and I don't think I was smart enough at the time to know this, but you, you're basically forced to answer the question, are you going to uh, get this over with, this college experience, or are you going to make it the most it could possibly be? And so we were dealt a hand, a set of cards that weren't great, um, given that earthquake and all the things that it meant. Um, but I, I, I decided, again, subconsciously, because I wasn't smart enough to know this, that I wanted this to be the best it could possibly be. And so that caused me to get much more actively involved with student activities and campus life than I might nor- normally have done so. And so I, I became very active in student government. And that taught me all kinds of new skills that helped me in, in the long run of my career. Things like public speaking or making a commitment in front of an audience and fulfilling upon that as a student government professional, negotiating in a public setting for what you want to have happen and being willing to be wrong and being willing to, uh, to, to uh, concede uh, a loss at times. Those are all principles that carry forward in life, irrespective of career, but they were things that were ones I picked up because of becoming involved with the campus and born off of the Northridge earthquake. I, I think of that term resiliency is, is, you know, you can, you, you get a perspective on magnitude of problems. And if your magnitude of problem is a 6.6 earthquake at 431 in the morning on a Monday, you now have a relative perspective of other things that are challenges in life that you deal with whether that's a fender bender on the freeway or uh, leaving your cell phone at home one day and how you make it through the day. Now on a relative basis, when you look at an earthquake and all the destruction and death and, and disruption that is caused as a result, those two other things, fender bender and cell phone are tiny in the grand scheme of things. And so when you put all of the problems that you're going to encounter in life and in work against that scale, then it makes you much more resilient on handling nearly anything. That's a great perspective. Uh, if I'm reading your timeline, your work timeline, right, it looks like you did have some a few years of professional experience before coming to BU. What was it about that first job that made you think you wanted to, to come to BU? And how did you choose BU over other opportunities? Yeah, so the first job I had out of school was at the Walt Disney Company. I was in um, the live action film group. This is the division that makes live action movies that are from Touchstone Pictures and Hollywood Pictures, things like Enemy of the State, 
Armageddon, The Sixth Sense, things like that. So not the Disney animated titles that most people are familiar with of the Walt Disney Company. Um, then I, so I spent two years in that group and then moved into the ESPN division of Disney. And so I got a chance to do marketing at Disney at ESPN. Two wonderful brands, both live action film of the company as well as ESPN. And of the cities that I had visited in my life, Boston ranked really high. thought it was a great place uh, to possibly land for graduate school. There's certainly enough students and campuses and great programs that can be considered. When, uh, when it came to applying and I got familiar with Boston University, in particular the MSMBA program, that one resonated extremely well for me because it was the blend of technology and business. And so because my undergrad degree at Cal State Northridge was in finance, um, a lot of the business concepts you would pick up in graduate in business school would have been covered in my undergrad. So accounting, finance, economics, statistics, all those things were covered. I, I don't say I mastered them in undergrad, but at least been exposed to them there. So I thought about the MS portion of the MSMBA, so the Masters in Information Systems that piece would have been an incredibly net new experience. And so the Boston University program, having it be a two-year program in which you get two degrees, in, in one in information systems, one in business administration, um, was very attractive. And when I researched the information systems portion, I, I figured out and learned that I would learn coding, uh, which I had never done before, the systems architecture and database designs, again, which I'd never done before. And so it was a material net new learning experience that was frankly a differentiator amongst any other business school at the time. Uh, I don't know of any other one who was offering a, a dual degree program. And it was, it was very attractive um, to me. And then Boston University helped along the way. It was, uh, you know, I got a nice healthy scholarship um, to join the program. And it felt good because I was coming from LA, coming from Disney, leaving a good job that was sustainable. And this made it uh, not only a great experience, but it was also, you know, reasonably financially tolerable and uh, thought for two years while there's a recession going on, the academic world may be the right place to be. So were there particular classes or professors or team projects that when you, when you look at your career since BU that you realize were just really influential and important? Yeah, there's very memorable ones. So uh, Professor Venkat, who's still at BU, um, has uh, some, some great classes that I took during the MSMBA program. Uh, Patrick Kaufman, Professor Patrick Kaufman, uh, taught a marketing course, which I'll probably never forget. There was a, another course that I'm not remembering the, the professor's name, but it was in the information systems program. And I remember the content of it. It was basically we'd learn a new technology every week and apply it to a certain industry. So at that time, things like RFID or um, voice over IP and figuring out how that might be applied to farming or entertainment and so on. And I appreciated that, that introduction to the technology in very short form, but then the application of that to business, which I thought was a perfect blend. So those are the three that stick out to me. Were there a lot of offers on the table for you after finishing your MBA? I know that you, it looks like you went right to Microsoft. Had you sort of set your sights on going to some giant tech company with a, with a great name right after your, your degree was over? Or how did you go about sort of navigating that decision? Well, if you look back at the economy of 2003, the graduating year that I was, um, it was a pretty dire state. So recessions do come and go. And I think the 2008 recession would be regarded as a much bigger drop. But 2001, that was the dot-com burst. 
it was a very big recession and certainly at the time that you're graduating. So offers were not plentiful uh, to many uh, to many folks. And to be honest, um, Boston University was in the shadow of Harvard and MIT and maybe some other schools. And so if there are just fewer jobs to go around and companies can be more selective on candidates, then there's fewer opportunities for folks who are having to, to fight their way through. I think this probably ties well to one of your earlier questions, Jeff, that the term resiliency in the context of that Northridge earthquake, um, the recession is effectively some really large bad thing that's happening to people. And, you know, I, I do firmly believe that there are uh, two types of people in the world. There are those who make it happen and those who let it happen. And I know when I pursued my employment after um, graduate school, I was determined to make it happen. And so uh, applying to nearly every company that is out there um, who might even consider hiring an MBA was what I was going after. And in, in my case, I got very lucky. I applied to Microsoft for an internship um, during the first year of business school. And I, I didn't have a connection there. There wasn't a job posting either. I had emailed to MBA at Microsoft.com, which is probably the most generic place you can send a resume. And I just you know, expressed my interest. And it took about six months for uh, a reaction to happen. I didn't expect any reaction, but six months later, I got a request for a phone interview. Uh, a couple days later, I was in Seattle for an in-person interview. And then I was in an internship position that summer. Uh, to my surprise, there were 33 M MBA interns at Microsoft that summer. This is summer 2002. And they had told us at orientation that there were about 100, there were about 30,000 applicants for the 33 MBA internship positions. And so just rough math, there are about 100,000 MBAs that are in play at any given time. So what is, does it sound reasonable that 30,000 would apply to Microsoft? Uh, I think so. So it felt um, like a very elite class. And uh, fortunately, Microsoft, in the time of that economy, was in a position where they could offer folks who successfully did, did well during the internship, they can offer them full-time jobs for the following year. So in my case, I did well enough during the internship that I was able to turn that into a full-time job offer for the next next year, which definitely took down the pressure of recruiting in, in the second year of my university time. But um, it, it was it was not a plethora of job offers. Um, I did have, uh, I think that was, that was probably the only one as full-time, but it was because I accepted it early. And I had one other offer for internship at the time. So it was Microsoft and DreamWorks were my two internship op options. So I chose Microsoft and that turned into a full-time. Mm -hmm. um, so this was not a rich plethora of job opportunities that were out there. And many of my classmates um, had to really struggle to find opportunities. Many of them went back to the companies they were with prior to business school um, because of the state of the economy. So it was, it was definitely not a, a, a great time to be coming out of the academic world and going into the, the business world, but I got a, a really good spot. That scared me forward very nicely. Hey, BU, I'm jumping in with a quick plug for the upcoming alumni events taking place online and around the world. Today, we're highlighting the Bay Area in our conversation with Parag. So for those of you living in and around San Francisco, don't miss an upcoming panel discussion called Maximizing Potential, Executive Perspective from Women in Leadership. 
It'll be held October 16th at the Fairmont in San Francisco. This panel features accomplished BU alumni, including former Proud to BU guest Kat Berman of C-Note and moderator Audrey Cooper, who's the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. To register for this event and to see the complete calendar of upcoming opportunities, visit bu.edu slash alumni slash events. So after, you know, your first jobs at Microsoft, you're getting some skills there. You've got the finance background, information systems and architecture. You've had some marketing experience. How do those three things play into sort of the next, you know, 10 years of your career early on? You end up working at some really well-known companies, MSNBC, uh, StubHub at one point. What, what's, tell me just when you're looking back now, how you see the sort of threads that connect all of those different companies and the work that you were doing. Great question. So my undergrad degree was in finance, as I mentioned, and I worked at Disney in finance. If you think about the world in the 90s, then the world of marketing was heavily oriented towards brand and your jingle or your spokesperson. That was the world of marketing at the time. So it wasn't as quantitative as it is today. So just as a perfect example of that is um, uh, T-Mobile. Most people can probably associate T-Mobile to the color pink. There's probably a a resemblance to the jingle that they have in their TV commercials. And Catherine Zeta-Jones was the spokesperson who was on every television ad and billboard, you know, throughout, throughout the country. And that was marketing back in the 90s. And in the 2000s, I think largely on the back of things like Google, um, it became very quantitative. And so it was you know, highly oriented towards click-through rate and traffic and conversion rate and those types of things. And so having the finance foundation helped me tremendously into a marketing role um, at ESPN. And that's what I was hired to do is bring the finance prowess into the internet world because everything was click-through based and calculations. And so that that experience in marketing then carried forward to um, my time at, at Microsoft um, which, you know, to some extent, Microsoft, you know, in, in product management, even though I was in product management there, there was a flavor of go to market that was a, a key component of what product management meant at Microsoft. And so the, the transition into product management was coupled with basically how product management became understanding the customer and then understanding customer's life cycle. Uh, from a quantitative perspective. So now if you think about the experiences I've had now in finance, as well as in marketing, those are the two core attributes that make up elements of being a strong product person, um, coupled with the technology experience from Boston University. There's a a phrase that that, uh, some people often use about what makes a great product manager. And um, it, it goes like this. A great product manager has the mind of an engineer the heart of a designer, and the voice of a diplomat. And so if you think about those attributes across those skills, you often pick up, well, the mind of an engineer. That, that experience would have been from my time at Boston University in the MS uh, program. Uh, the, the design element, the heart of a designer, comes from experiences in marketing because you understand consumer reaction to something you've put out there. The voice of a diplomat is a completely different skill. But for me, I think I picked it up at Cal State Northridge when I was in student government. You have to make commitments and follow through on them. You have to speak publicly and own the uh, commitments you make. 
So it's a combination of all those experiences that made up the attributes that are the go forward of what a great product manager is today. And then, you know, along the way, I'd say, you know, I'd say that the ebbs and flows of the economy have have helped me in my career, um, especially I look backwards and say, you know, the the ability to get into Microsoft was born off of having a great experience at Disney. The ability to get into um, the startup world in Seattle or subsequently MSNBC and then eBay were born off of great experiences at Microsoft. And you keep going, you know, along that, and it's sort of building on top of the previous set of experiences that make you more marketable. I, I feel like my time at Tesla most recently has helped me essentially get the same brand refresh that I had when I was at Disney. And so those are the, the kind of iconic companies. Disney is still iconic, but it was certainly iconic in, in 97, as well as Microsoft in the 2000s. But Tesla is an iconic company of, of today. And so that you know, continues to build off of the past experiences that I've had um, and you know, led me to the place where I am now at, at a wonderful role at Google, which is a combination of all the experiences that I've had together. So it's, you know, if you think about the first question you asked me about the, 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 the roles that I look for and I look for innovation and companies that are looking to disrupt the way it always has always been, this is a combination of the experiences I've had and building up to the next thing. So you mentioned your, your current role at Google, and I definitely want to ask you about that. But I know our listeners will be upset if I don't dig in a little bit about your Tesla experience. I have to imagine that you were working fairly close with Elon Musk, right? Uh, that's correct. I was leading the digital team, um, digital product team at Tesla, as well as design and content. So if you think about those three functions uh, and what makes up a digital screen at Tesla, then really it's four different displays. There's the in-retail store experience where there's touch screens that help people get familiar with the suite of products of Tesla. The buying experience that's on the web and mobile web for how you configure your car or solar products the mobile app that allows you to interact with your car and set temperature and alarm and key entry and so on. And then finally, the in-car touchscreen display experience. So those are the four things that make up um, what digital at Tesla means. And my role was overseeing product management, design, and content. Um, Elon cares quite a bit about design and content. And uh, so there was many, many interactions that I had with him on on design. And, uh, you know, there was a time when I reported to him as well. And so there was a, a phenomenal experience of learning from one of, like I said, more or more iconic uh, people in the world today. It's so interesting as you're talking about the, you know, the experience of the customer and, and the intersection of good technology. I think Tesla is one of those companies that immediately comes to mind for folks. Um, you worked with, with Elon Musk for a while. Are you able to sort of boil down uh, one or two things that you really picked up uh, working with him? Uh, you know, obviously, there's so many people in the world that respect him for being an innovator. Are, are there just tiny nuggets that you could share with folks about what you learned in working with him? One of the things I walked away with was to continually challenge the status quo. And this is uh, to an extreme level. And so if you think about challenging status quo in most of corporate life, that, that's a common phrase that often people use. But at Tesla, it is an extreme uh, scenario. And there were many, many times when it was so easy to fall into the trap of this is the way it's always been done or the auto industry requires these five things 
and therefore we must. So then therefore build technology accordingly. And that was, was continually reinforced by Elon that we must challenge the status quo and make, make progress on our mission and vision and move these things out of the way. And I think the, the evidence of that, there were probably about five times when I you know, disagreed with the, the path that we were going to go on, thinking that it was just the wrong path or it was not going to work out well. And I believe it was four out of five of those times, Elon was right. And it's a very humbling experience to go through that, an incredible learning experience to walk out of the room saying, wow, two months ago, I thought he was wrong and, and completely wrong and completely crazy about whatever the thing was. But it turns out he was truly right. And so I don't think that'll ever leave me. And I, I you go, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. You go through daily life and continually challenge the status quo. Uh, I, I drive through my neighborhood and see stop signs in certain places and wonder, is there a better way that this could be operated? But because the world has adopted stop signs, that's what we've chosen to do. Um, it just never ends in, in, in your mind. Um, that is going to live with me forever. You know, I'll, I'll never forget. Well, and it makes sense that those things, you know, that those exact ideas about challenging the status quo are what led you to Google? Well, I'm sure you're working with some amazing colleagues there in their basically in their in-house incubator, right? Your title is founder and residence. What does that mean to you? And how do other people maybe misunderstand what your role is at Google? Yeah, so in Google, there is a group that's called Area 120. That's what I'm a part of. It's a play on words where you spend 120% of your time on a specific innovative area. So as a founder in residence, I join um, with a fairly good amount of Greenfield to figure out what would represent something that's innovative at Google that is um, not something one of the current divisions of Google would likely take on in the next few years. And our charter is to advance Google's position uh, on the back of the current presence that we have across the marketplace in various categories. And so when I walked into this role, I thought about what Google is known for and what some of the core competencies are and the innovative technologies that are within the relevant range that we can play with. And so I've, I've chosen to spend a tremendous amount of my time on machine learning capabilities and predictive modeling. And I figured that if, if any company was going to you know, get a good representation of what consumer sentiment is that's out there, Google is one of those. Um, if you can couple that with the capabilities in machine learning uh, to forecast and predict what will happen going forward, um, there's some monetization model that may exist if you were to be able to do that successfully. And fortunately, we get the latitude to go and build a great product, um, figure out what the right business model is, test and learn with existing customers and, and do those iterations in a specific area. So a common misperception of what um, my group would be viewed as is that we incubate on new things every week. That's not exactly the case. We spend, you know, on the order of six months or 12 months dedicated to a certain functional intent and a certain desired outcome. And so those are larger size innovations is kind of the point. The other way to say it is, you know, Google X, and we're often confused with Google X. Um, Google X is thinking about what's considered moonshots that are built um, frankly, without the benefit of the existence of Google. So if you think about some of the products that Google X is building, 
um, whether it's Waymo or Loon, uh, they don't necessarily depend on YouTube or Google Maps or Android to be successful. They need to stand alone uh, on that intent. So they're chasing some of those initiatives, whereas my group is focused on how do we advance Google's uh, current position through innovative new technology development. So you've had these incredible experiences at some of the leading tech companies in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area. Have you been tempted at all to start your own venture, or is that just not something that's ever really appealed to you? I've been tempted many, many times to start my own venture. Um, and, and periodically, I do have things that I, I test and try um, with free time. And so, you know, I've, I have an ongoing pursuit um, with water conservation. You know, I feel like uh, global warming is a real thing. Um, we ought to do something for our next few generations because it'll only get tougher, uh, especially when you look at population increases. Then we, there, there are things that we would you know, look at ourselves 30 years from now and cringe that we were doing those. Very akin to, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you, it was acceptable to drive with kids in the back seat and not have seat belts on. And we would cringe at that. Now we have five point harnesses for kids. Um, I think we're probably due for awakening on things in the, in the realm of water conservation that can sustain many more generations if we did something today. And so I've got initiatives on that front that I'm pursuing. And, you know, they may not uh, come to fruition in, in the next month or quarter or year, um, but, you know, got a strong premise and something that I'd like to investigate, you know, when and where I have time. Well, in other stories, uh, you know, we'd like to talk about experiences people have outside of their jobs that contribute to their career. Uh, my colleague, Matt, who introduced me to you, also um, mentioned a story that we talked about briefly. Uh, you had a brief stint in music production and the music business that I, it sounds like was really sort of foundational in some ways for you. Uh, I hope you'll be willing to tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So it's, it's uh, not, it's active, still active. So I am producing music, um, which is really weird for me to say, um, but I am. And uh, I, part of it was just the simple challenge of going end to end. And if you think about what it takes to make music it, and you really unpack it to say, what does it take to make music? There, is a lot of, there are a lot of elements that are there. And so I wanted to see if I could do it beginning to end. And so that meant, you know, a song typically has a story. One has to know what the story is. You've got to have a catchy beat to it. Um, if you're going to do video, then you've got to have a video production associated with it and then have a mechanism to distribute it to the world, uh, followed by a mechanism to promote it to the world. And if you were not doing this as a hobby, but a business, then you've got to figure out how to monetize that. So there are at least six dimensions that I just described. And I, I really enjoy the idea of taking on that challenge to see if I can figure out how best to accomplish those six. And I, I do firmly believe in something that Steve Jobs said is that you cannot connect the dots going forward. You can only connect the dots going backwards. And so there are many times in my career that I've taken on some type of a personal challenge out of the sheer curiosity of ability to execute said thing in which it has paid off in the future in a way that I could not have predicted it at the time I was doing it. And so this is falling into that same era area where I'm learning about... Um, Things that I would not learn about in my job, for example, how to do Instagram marketing, not something I would have normally come across, but now because I'm producing music, I'm learning about that or distributing on YouTube and garnering 
uh, people to like and follow uh, my brand. And so um, distribution on Spotify is another example, and then creation of beats and so on. Um, the brand is called Silicon Beats. You can find it on YouTube as well as Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music and other things. I think I've produced on the order of about uh, eight to 10 songs. And as of the last few weeks, I've been releasing about uh, uh, two songs per month. So it's been a lot of fun, Jeff. So Parag, you've obviously had some amazing experiences. Can you give us a hint with, with all the projects you've worked on? Maybe, you know, what's where you see yourself you know, in 10 years from now, it seems like you've, you know, not spent more than five years in any given company. Are there, are there other places that you'd like to, to explore? I mean, obviously you probably won't tell me that right now, but where do you, where do you see the, the rest of your career heading? I, I'm positioning myself from where I am now to either one of two paths. It's either take on a CEO role in the future or to be a senior leader in a large size company. Think of, you know, head of a division or president of a division or something like that. And I, I think part of the experience I'm getting now at Google is uh, this idea of founder residence is really a CEO role. And it's developing a company from within Google, hiring people and evangelizing the proposition and getting, frankly, acquired by one of the groups within Google. And so that is an experience that resembles the startup experience. I think it misses the fundraising pieces or some of the angst that one might go through on getting real estate and stuff like that. But overall, the idea of finding the right product, building it, and then selling it is what a CEO does. And so that's, that's where I am now. And I feel like this is, this is keep giving me the training ground um, to, to be candidate for a CEO role in the future. And so I'm, I'm doing a bunch of things that can, can lead to that. I'm trying to learn skills and emulate what are the future CEOs, what are the skills that people are going to need. So I, I think of that as my path forward. Now, I've also enjoyed the idea of working in large size companies um, and the you know, divisions of different companies. So I wouldn't take that off the table, which is why I say those are the one, one of the two paths is what I see forward. Well, uh, Parag, you, I know BU has asked to interview you uh, several times for some different projects. Um, I also know that you have been really well connected to BU and, and have been supporting BU financially. And I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you much. Uh, thank you so much for everything you're doing for BU and, and thanks for your time today. Absolutely, Jeff. Uh, BU has been so great to me and I owe a lot of my success to BU. And so I'll do anything for BU. It was such a pleasure to speak with Parag, and I hope our listeners got as much out of that conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about Parag and the work that he's doing with Google's Area 120 workshop, I encourage you to connect with him on LinkedIn. If you're passionate about entrepreneurship, I also recommend that you check out the great things happening right here on our campus through Innovate at BU and the Build Lab. You can see all the details at bu.edu innovate. On behalf of everyone on the BU Alumni Relations team, thanks so much for listening to Proud to Be You. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you find your episodes. I'm Jeff Murphy, and no matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. The Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University Alumni Relations. Our theme is from Jump and APM Music. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash alumni slash podcast.